Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. Hey, I, I, man, I cannot tell you how bad I feel about having to cut my hair. Oh, I wasn't going to say that. I, 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 um, no, I, I can't tell you how Linda and I feel being back here after being gone for, uh, about a year and a half, I guess, something like that. Um, I was actually, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get into, uh, politics. Uh, you all know we have an election coming up and, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, about what's going to happen. I I have no fear about what's going to happen because I do believe what God said to Daniel is not just old covenant, but it is true about the nature of our God. He sets up one nation for a purpose that only he understands. He brings down another. And uh, so because I believe in that, uh, I'm, I'm not facing this Tuesday with fear. I am very interested <laughs> <laughs> to see, to see what's going to happen. Uh, and then of course the whole COVID thing has thrown the whole world, uh, for a loop. And, uh, there are many, believe me, there are many, many countries that are suffering far worse than we are. Uh, just this past week we've had a number of, uh, young pastors in good health that we have worked so much with and mentored for so many years who've died, gone on to be with Jesus. I do believe what God said to David that, uh, or what David said about God, that he knew all of our days before we were ever born. And uh, he is not taken by surprise. Now, while we're here, we'll be here all the whole month of November, and uh, except for next Sunday, which is a special Sunday that I, I think you need to look forward to, uh, where uh, Rick Benjamin will be speaking on a topic that Many pastors in the city are also going to be speaking on at the same time next Sunday. But uh, all the other Sundays in uh, in November, uh, I'll be speaking, uh, teaching in the foundry during the week. Thank you very much, whoever, whoever, whoever those students are that are hooting and howling. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been uh, it, it's been interesting. I will say that I was in Hong Kong when news first came out. Uh, about this virus, and uh, and all of a sudden everybody was wearing masks, and flights started started shutting down. But fortunately, I live with and travel with my personal nurse and my personal travel agent, my wife Linda, and uh, and and she, uh, contrary to her calm demeanor when you normally talk to her, can get. Christian vicious on the phone. Uh, sounds like an oxymoron there all of a sudden, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, convinced the airlines to reroute me through several different countries. Uh, and airports were already looking like ghost towns. And uh, it's just interesting what's happening, but it's no surprise. And by the way, um, for those of you that may not have been taught good history when you're in school... Um, this type of thing has happened throughout human history. We live in a fallen world, and the Bible tells us clearly that all things are decaying until 
the king comes back and restores everything to the Garden of Eden pristineness, and you and I will live in the kingdom of God and help him rule over all of his creation. That day is coming, and that's the reason that it does really concern me right now that along with the rest of the world who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, many Christians are suffering from loneliness and nervousness and great anxiety and fear. And if if you found yourself falling into that, here's the good news. We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. At the same time, the subject that we're going to start on today and continue on through the whole month of November is designed by God to help us in the midst of immense trials yet to stay in a life of peace and joy and confidence with God. We should not feel the way the world feels. They say, well, you're not, that makes me feel bad because I have been feeling bad. That's okay. That's all right. You have a high priest who understands your weaknesses and my weaknesses. And we celebrate that because that's the nature of our God. At the same time, we do want to understand that the Christian life is supposed to produce something else within us that the world cannot know. And just a little bit of reading in history will let us know that the world has gone through times far worse than this. And even let me go ahead. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I, I Don't be among those who say, America has never been as divided over politics as it is right now. Really? We fought a civil war. Do you know which war cost the most American lives in the history of our country? The civil war. More people died in that war. Less than 2% more died in all other wars we participated in. And, may I say, that there were multitudes in the north and in the south who were convinced they were doing the will of God by fighting the other side. It's just history. We just, we need to understand that. We need to understand our, our current situation in, in, the, in the face of history. Now, one real quick commercial. We brought our books, and uh, uh, we now have some of our books translated in as many as 20 languages, and some of you have been extremely instrumental in that by your very generous giving to help us do that. But while we're here, all the books will be $10, so grab whatever you can grab. We want you to have them. With one exception, and that is uh, what continues to be a fight within the body of Christ around the world, and that's the role of women in leadership. And a huge, huge misunderstanding of what the Apostle Paul did write and did not write, and why he wrote what he did write. And so we're wanting everybody to have this. Who does not yet have my book, The New Covenant Role of Women in Ministry? Who did, You had your hand up right there. Okay, now this is going to be a little dangerous. Okay, close enough. All right, 
$5. That's like the cost of the book. But we want you to have them. Buy them in bulk. Give them to your friends. Because there there are lessons in there beyond just women's roles in the Scripture, but lessons about how to read the Scripture the way they read it. How to understand what Paul said the way they understood. For example, there is something highly unique about Corinth and Ephesus in the first century that was different than virtually all the other cities Paul went to. So he had instructions to the people in Corinth and Ephesus that he did not give to other cities because they had a unique set of circumstances. And until you understand what those circumstances are, there's no way in the world we can understand that. And that's because epistles are letters. They're not books. Now, we say that, and I'll say that. I'll say turn to the book of Romans, but it's really a letter. There's a big difference between letters. I should ask the students to to uh, to respond to this. There's a big difference between books and letters. You generally write a letter to somebody you know, whom you already have a relationship, and all you have to do is just mention one word, and they know exactly what you're talking about, Right? Right. See, when I, when I, when I send a text to my, my oldest daughter, I say, please tell little Milo I said hello. Nobody else would understand that. But she's got a dog that's lived to be about 406. <laughs> and that poor little guy is just creeping around like a corpse with a tiny bit of air left in it, you know? But you wouldn't know that. Because that's a letter to somebody already. Anyway, let me get off of that. And, uh, and let's get going. We're gonna be talking about the miracle and the mystery of new covenant grace. We're going to be talking about a very important distinction between grace used in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant and the word grace used in the New Testament or in the New Covenant. And uh, my title for this morning is, What's the Big Deal About Grace? And I'll tell you the big deal is, That if we don't know what it really is, we won't believe it. If we don't believe it, then we cannot put our faith in it. If we don't put our faith in what it really is, then we cannot get the transformation that grace is intended to produce inside of us. Just listen to these verses. Write them down in your notes if you want. We're not going to show these. We will some others. But just listen to these verses. The opening chapter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now think about what Peter says. Set your hope fully on grace. Well, then I better know what grace is if I'm going to set my hope. This is the way he ends that very same letter, 1 Peter chapter 5. I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Do you know that nearly every epistle in the New Testament begins with an exhortation to grace and ends with an exhortation to grace. Virtually every epistle by every writer starts with a declaration reminding them, as Peter says, of the true 
grace, which obviously means that there can be a false grace. Paul says this, I am what I have become by the work of God's grace in my life. 1 Corinthians 15. What I have become is a result of the working of the grace of God in my life. So whatever grace meant to them, they considered it to be the most important thing in their life. Why? Well, as we're going to see in these coming weeks, because the true understanding of grace produces everything else we want. And everything else God wants us to become is a result of, number one, understanding what true new covenant grace is, and number two, putting our faith in it. For those of you like me who have spent maybe many years of your Christian life frustrated because you constantly felt like you were coming up short, because you were facing areas of your life that You wanted to change and you kept promising God you were going to change, but you didn't change. Our answer, mine and yours, is a greater understanding of what they meant when they used the word grace. Definitions really do matter. Wrong definitions can be funny. The first time is a 24-year-old in 1974 that I flew to Africa. Talk about a fish out of water. I was a hippie out of water. Speaking about hair, Edward, where are you? There you are. What can I say, brother? We both had a come-to-Jesus moment with our wives. I had mine cut off yesterday. I haven't had a haircut all year long. And man, was I enjoying it. I can't grow it here, but man, I can grow it here. And now, at 70 years old, I can grow it in my ears and out of the top of my nose. Never crossed my mind that I would actually travel with a pair of of tweezers so that I could tweeze the top of my nose. I look in the mirror and say, are you lost? There's free land right up here. One of our old-time Jesus freak... Uh, buddies wrote a song and said, I grew my hair out long to make room for my brain. Well, <laughs> but when I was in South Africa, stepped off that plane, I was in a whole different world, 24 years old. And uh, the first thing they did was they took me to a restaurant. It was a nice restaurant. We sat down at this night steak place and and uh, I looked around. I was so nervous and, and, and realized that I had silverware, but I, I didn't have a napkin. And it was one of those cloth napkin places, you know, and, and, uh, so as the, the waiter walked by, I, I got his attention and said, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but somehow or another, I either didn't get a napkin or I've lost my napkin. And he burst out laughing. And I had no idea what he was laughing about. And then he told the rest of the table what I had just said. And these men of God just hee hawed and cackled, uh, so dishonorably. And, uh, uh, and then they told me that in in uh, in South Africa, because they were ruled by Britain for many years, they uh, they don't use the word napkin to refer to what I was talking about. They call that a serviette. However, they do use the word napkin. They don't use the word baby diaper. 
you wrap your babies behind in a nappy, a napkin. And so I just told the, 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 the waiter that I'd lost my diaper and would he bring me another one? Now, <clears throat> definition. I, I used a word that they define differently. Same word, different definition. Def, wrong definition can be funny. They can also be very sad. The older ones of us here who, or who are watching, who remember the presidency of Bill Clinton, you remember the uh, impeachment trials uh, over the sexual scandal, and uh, you remember the statement that he made in self-defense when he said, well, the answer to that, sirs, all depends on what the definition of is, is. That's sad. can also be deadly. Would you, uh, would you show that, uh, um, yeah, it should be number two. Uh, can we, no, sorry. Um, um, it should be the second one. There you go. Here we go. Um, in St. Louis, we have, like most cities in America, we have a lot of refugees. And uh, we had some, we have a large uh, Sudan, uh, Sudanese uh, population in St. Louis of refugees who have come. Most of them come not speaking English. And one of the Sudanese mother's child got sick, didn't have much money, so they went to a, a free clinic there in St. Louis. And the doctor prescribed a medication, and uh, these were the instructions that this woman from Sudan was given. Now, I would read this and say, that says one quarter of a teaspoon a day for 10 days. How many think that's what that says? Well, being from Sudan and English being very difficult for her, she looked at that and she read that one tablespoon four times a day for 10 days. And in seven days, her child died. Did the doctor screw up? No. It was just a really bad definition. But that definition wasn't funny. It was more than sad. It was deadly. When I, I believe in the last 23 years now, traveling most of that time without a home anywhere, traveling nonstop around the world, I believe that one of the devil's primary weapons against believers is to get us to wrongly define the biblical word, the new covenant biblical word, grace, so that we will keep turning to our own human effort and always be frustrated, never having real confidence with God, because we do not understand his work and our response. And that will only come to us when we understand what they meant when they used the word Grace. Definitions depend on context. Do you know that if you will look up in any dictionary the word run, R-U-N, the word run has more than 100 definitions. We were watching the World Series. They have runs in baseball. But they also run from one base to another. And when the field guys are working, they paint the walls of the stadium and the paint runs. And you run to the store, but you don't really run to the store, especially in this weather. You drive. But see, that word run really doesn't mean anything until you put it in context, or in this case, in a sentence. Don't let the paint run. But it needs its exercise. See, that doesn't make any sense. Because the context defines what we're talking about. When we read the Bible, 
May I say that one of the worst things we do, and we don't do this with any other kind of a book. We really don't. We, we do not take Shakespeare, close our eyes, open the book, point to a sentence, and think we understand what's going on. We just, we just don't, of course, for people uneducated like me, you read Shakespeare and you say, I ain't reading this again. I don't understand any of it, even though I've read it in context. But, but that's a different problem. That's my own personal challenge. But, but, but context is everything. And still, millions of God's people open up the Bible, point to a verse, and think that means directly to them. Well, if that's the case, then read the book of Titus and get on a plane and go to Crete and ordain elders. And he says to do that. I'm sending you, I'm sending you to Crete to ordain elders. Paul says that. The Bible says that. Say, so, yeah, but that was him. That's not for me. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So context means everything. Now, the word grace is not new. In the Old Testament, the English translations of the word grace appear over 240 times. And in every single case, without exception, that word grace means unmerited favor or unearned love. Let me suggest that it does not mean that. When the word charis is used in Greek, it doesn't mean that. Now, there is another word in the New Testament that means that. It's the word mercy. Mercy is not grace. Grace is not mercy. Not in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, it was. In the Old Covenant, there was no work of the Spirit that made them alive from the dead in their sins and put the Spirit of God living inside of them All the time. There's nothing like that in the Old Testament. They live completely by faith in what God said. And they are now waiting. The Old Testament saints, though they are with God, they are waiting to be completed until we join them. And we'll look at that in just just, just a moment. But something very important changed about our English word grace from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, in the New Testament, the word grace is used well over a 100 times. But when it's used, it's used in a Greek context. It's the Greek word that we transliterated in English, charis. And it does not mean, as so many still seem to hang on to, unmerited favor. Now look, if, if when you, when you think of the words unmerited favor, if you get a mental image of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead coming to live inside of you and now progressively sanctifying you and changing you and transforming you and miraculously able uh, enabling you to let the nature of Jesus flow through you as the fruit of the Spirit, then call it unmerited favor. I don't care. But I'm telling you from traveling the world for many, many years and speaking to hundreds of thousands of leaders That's not what most people think of when you say unmerited favor. When you say unmerited favor, most people think, well, he loves me even though I don't deserve it. And he does, but that's not new covenant grace. Well, then it means unearned love. No, no, he does love us and we can't earn it. It's him, not us. We just receive it and then reflect it back to him. But that's not new covenant grace. Wrong definition of God's grace in the new covenant will be the difference 
between living with peace, joy, and confidence with God or living in frustration, fear, and condemnation. You will go to heaven when you die if your faith is in Christ and you've been born of his everlasting eternal seed. But the journey on the way there will be frustrating, fearful, and condemning unless we understand what they meant when the Holy Spirit inspired them. Grace is not mercy. They use the word mercy in the New Testament, but they also use the word grace, and they use them together to show that they are two different things. God's grace is not forgiveness. How many remember the story that Jesus gave about the man who owed more money than he could ever pay in his whole life? And he went to the guy that he owed the money to, and he pleaded with him, and the man forgave him. That is not new covenant grace. That is mercy. And thank God for his mercy. We never outgrow the need for fresh revelations of his unearned mercy, his unearned love for us. Absolutely. But that's not new covenant grace. And the evidence of that story is that after this man was forgiven of something that was so much he could never, ever repay it, he turned right around, went out, got a guy who owned to him the equivalent of a hundred bucks, grabbed him by the neck, the Bible says, And he said, if you do not pay me all of it right this minute, I'm going to have you thrown in jail. Now, what was the problem? Was the man not forgiven of his overwhelming debt? Yes, he was. But that alone did not change who he was. We're talking about the miracle of a new birth that puts another nature inside of us. Hint, hint. Whose nature is it? God's, the very spiritual DNA of God himself comes to live inside of us. In fact, I've already heard it a couple of times this morning, in and through, in and through, in and through. Pour out your love in me and then through me to others. That's what we're talking about. That's what they were talking about. And you don't get this in any other religion. There's no other religion in the world that promises you that their God will actually come and live inside of you and then begin to live his life through you. Whoa, there is no better deal than this. I mean, every religion, whatever God they worship or pray to, has a set of standards that their God says you have to live up to. Our God says, don't worry all about that. Just let me keep filling you up with my life. I'll live me through you. Makes all the difference in the world. By the way, if I, uh, yeah, I'm feeling really great today, but you know, for many of you know that for about 10 years, because of severe breakdown of the bones in my neck, I was, I was a mess and could barely do this once or twice a week. I have very mysteriously gotten completely well. And uh, I'm, I am, I'm thrilled about that. It's been two years without a single pain medication, and I tell you, I just can't, I can't tell you how thrilling that is. But you know, when I was hurting at my worst, aspirin, ibuprofen, pfft, I could have taken a whole bottle and all it would have done was make me throw up. It would not have helped with the pain at all. It would just give me something else to worry about. But if you're in severe pain and you look at an unlabeled bottle of pills in your house and you they look to you like aspirin, if you're in severe pain 
you're not going to bother to take those because you don't have any faith that they're going to do any good. But if you made a mistake and those weren't actually aspirin, but they were double dose Vicodin, if you would have believed that, you could have at least temporarily been relieved from your pain. But why didn't you take it? Because you defined them wrongly. The wrong definition will steal our faith in what might be after salvation, the single most important thing in the believer's life. Now, in Greek, the word mercy means the same thing that both mercy and grace means in Old Hebrew. And the most concise definition is tender compassion or undeserved love. But the word charis is a very unique Greek word. It was in use, but the apostles took that word and they used it to describe something essential to the life of the believer. Charis does, when you look it up in a simple uh, concordance or a Bible dictionary, does mean er uh, unmerited favor. However, the translators go a step beyond because they realize the tendency of most people, especially reading English, when they think of unmerited favor, they don't think of resurrection power living inside of me. We tend to think of love and mercy and I don't deserve it. And all that's true, but that's not charis. Dr. Strong does the best thing for us by giving us an enhanced definition. And here it is. Have we got it? Yes, we do. All right. Charis, the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. Let me stop right there. I want you to focus on the word influence. When the apostles wrote about this is the true grace of God, let me put it in another way. This is the true influencing power of God that will change your heart and cause his nature to reflect out of your life. See, it meant something very different than, listen, I want you to know that God loves you. He'll always love you. That's absolutely true. We need to bask in that. We need to keep getting refilled with that revelation and grow in that revelation. But that is not charis. That is not grace. Grace is the transforming part. Let me put it another way. Mercy is saying, I need a hug, even though I don't deserve it. And somebody gives it to you in post. COVID days. Grace is weak on me saying, plug me in. I enjoy your hug. I love it. Keep hugging me. But at the same time, plug me in to something more powerful than my best effort. Something more powerful than my good intentions. Plug me into your divine life. And flow in and through me. Listen to these words. This is back to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read these very quickly. Whatever I am now, it is all because of God's charis in me. God's grace at work in me. And not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but it was the grace of God working with and through me. Acts chapter 20. Now I commit you to God. And to the word of his grace, which can build you up. The 
grace of God is what strengthens us, builds us up. Why? Because it's him living inside of us. Now, let me quickly get you to our basic working verse here. This is, I believe it should be number four. Ephesians chapter two. Now, we're going to go through this quickly, but we are going to go through it almost word for word. All right, here we go. What I want you to focus on is the way the Apostle Paul uses the word mercy and the word grace, all right? But because of his great love, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in what? Mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sins. Sorry, transgressions. There it is. There we go, transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the use of the word mercy and grace. Now, think about this. What, could you go back to the previous one? What motivates God to save us? Come on. His love and mercy, all right? So God is motivated to do this miracle for us of the rebirth. He's motivated by his mercy, by his love. But, now go to the next one. No, I'm sorry. There we go. But it is by grace you have been saved. Now, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be raised from the dead. We were dead in our sins. When you receive Christ as Savior... This is not just a mental ascent. Something very spiritual begins inside of you. Something that we cannot possibly do for ourselves. But we need to understand, God is motivated to do for us by his great mercy. But the power that he uses is the power of his grace. Go to the next one. And God has set us, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is motivated by his mercy and love, but he does his work inside of us by his grace. Go to the next one quick. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by words. No man can boast. So here's something that we learned about grace. It's unearned. You cannot get the power of God to work more in your life by doing good stuff. No matter how many times somebody on some Christian television shows tell you that if you give a bigger offering, then the grace of God will work more for you. No. It's completely unearned. So that you and I can never ever take the credit for any change that it brings about in our lives. So it all goes to God. And then we end with this verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. We, For we are God's workmanship. Now think about this. It takes more than just mercy to raise you from your deadness apart from God. It takes power. There is a clear distinction in these verses between mercy and grace. Both are desperately needed. But we already understand mercy. We need to understand grace. The good works that we've been made for are to be reflected out of our lives... Not just to be nice to people, although that's included, but to cause them to look and say, you've changed. You're different than you used to be. I'm starting to kind of like to be around you. You're, you're kind. I don't get much of that. Are, are you there? See, we were, we're, we're imagers of the divine nature. By the way, one of the Greek words that 
is used so frequently when we talk about this imaging God is the Greek word icon. Now, we know it because of computers. But an icon is a representation of what's going to happen when you push that button. That's what we are as he's living in us and through us by the power of his grace. Watchman Nee in his very well-read book, The Normal Christian Life, makes this amazing statement. New covenant grace is living my life by the power of another life who is living in me. There's a miracle going on. Someone is living inside of me. Now, I know last night was Halloween, so don't conjure up ideas of the, of the alien. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. That's a Josh Tanner joke. Yeah, you, did you recognize it? I know I didn't do the very good like Josh does. I'm sorry. I, I have to work on that a little bit more. But let me give you a quick definition. Let's put this up here. This is what I believe uh, is a definition that I've worked on for many, many years to try to communicate clearly uh, um, the unearned life of Christ. Can we get, do we have that? The unearned, here, here we go. This is what I've come to understand grace in the way they use it and the way we're going to be talking about it. And what does it mean? How do I practically implement this in my life? How do I put my faith in this? What, 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 what don't I have to do? Because Paul said, I do not live in this way because that will nullify the grace of God. And he was not talking about sin. Grace is actually the medicine for sin. It is not what keeps us from grace. I mean, when you go to a doctor and you have an infection and he's going to give you an antibiotic, that's the medicine. Now, I appreciate that the fact that my doctor is very compassionate, very merciful. She does not slap me across the face and say, why did you go fishing and get bit by a tick and now you have Lyme disease and it's going to stay in you the rest of your life? She doesn't slap me for that. She says, I'm really sorry that you've been sick. And out of her compassion, she now uses her expertise to give me the medication that I want. But I have to have just enough faith to open my mouth every day and swallow that pill. But that pill can do something inside of me that I cannot possibly do for myself. Are you there? See, and this, this is, this is, this is going to the doctor and saying, well, I should have come last week when I was really sick, but I'm doing really good now. Well, why didn't you come last week when you were really sick? Oh, I was too embarrassed for you to see me like that. Now, when we're overcome by the mercy and love of God, it washes away our shame and embarrassment. We come to him and we boldly say, this is what's wrong with me. I'm asking you to help me change. And what does he do? He cranks up the volume on his grace. Because that is his life living inside of us. Quickly, mercy is a doctor's compassion which enables us to tell him the truth or her so that he can diagnose our true problem. Grace is the power of the medicine the doctor has expertise to dispense. We take our medicine by choosing to believe God tells the truth about his grace. Grace is not pardon. Grace is power. Grace is not the forgiveness of our sins. Grace is the ever-increasing ability to say no to sin. We'll talk about that further. Grace is why God made us alive. Our mercy is why. Grace is how. Mercy is our high priest who understands our weaknesses. 
Grace is our high priest living in us, empowering us from the inside to begin to overcome those weaknesses. Mercy is complete and eternal. Grace is the transforming work that is growing in us, but will com- be completely completed when we finally stand before him and see him as he really is. Until then, grace works in us and through us to the degree that we choose to cooperate with him from the inside out. And we'll be talking more about how to do that in the Sundays to come. If you're here this morning and you've had various thoughts about God, about Christ, about the Bible, about the church, you obviously have real interest or you wouldn't have been here this morning. But it's very possible that you may have never really understood what it means to surrender ownership of your life to him. And that's really what this is all about. Because he loves you so much that he wants you to have his life. He wants you to have his unwavering peace and his abounding joy in the midst of trouble. He wants to put within you the very DNA of his life. So I I can't understand that. I know. I can't either. I just keep reading it, renewing my mind, and putting my faith in it. And then, lo and behold, Linda and I have been married going, it'll be 49 years while we're here this month. 49 years. Yeah, well, I don't know if that's worthy of applause or just, well, it's good that you didn't kill each other. It's... uh, But, you know, over the years, Linda and I can look at each other and say, since we've come to believe what we're talking about today, there's been consistent change in our lives. We're different people now than we were just 20 years ago. And I don't mean just by age, but but different in our kindness and in our our love and our patience. But that's not because we grit our teeth to try to be kind. But because we say to Jesus, I can't do this on my own, but since you're living inside me, you are the kindest person ever. Just be kind through me. Here's what I would like for you to do. If if you really don't know or have not turned the ownership of your life over to him, there would be no better time than right now when you've just started to catch a little glimpse that he doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to live in and through you, giving you what he calls the abundant life. Would you bow your head with me just for a minute? I want you to think about this just for a moment. I'm just going to give you a quick opportunity. This, without a doubt, in my opinion, the most important decision you're ever going to make in your whole life. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus so that he becomes the owner of your life. And as a result, he comes into you and begins a work of change and transformation that you are absolutely going to love. Then I'd like for you to slip up your hands so that we know who you are. We just, just so we'll pray for you. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. Anybody? Do we have anybody here with us this morning? I, I want, I want to make sure that if you do, we do. Okay, good. Thank you. I see that. Yeah. Okay, good. Good, good. This is going to be a great day for you, man. It's just, it's going to make all the difference in the whole world. All right, good. That's good. That's good. Would you stand, please? Here's what I want you to do. Stand up with me just for a moment. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to have some friends here in our church who are going to come up to the front. And they're going to be waiting on you. If you didn't raise your hand, that's fine. Just, just, just trying to make it as easy for everybody as possible. But 
what I would strongly encourage you to do is to not leave today. But what I would encourage you to do is to come down and talk to one of these friends here who wants to talk more with you and pray with you that the miracle that we're talking about, and it is a miracle, will begin in you today. And I want to encourage you to do that before you leave. And for any of the rest of us who do know Jesus, who are under his ownership, but have been facing mountains of frustration recently, grace is the working of Christ inside of us that can wash that away beyond our ability to understand. So if that's what you need, I want you too to come forward. And just agree with these people. Let them pray with you and and for you that God would fill you with a greater understanding of what it means for Christ to be living in and through us. So, Father, we just ask you to move on our hearts with whatever our needs are. And for those who may be here and you are not yet the owner and Lord of their life, we ask you, Lord, to give them enough boldness, enough hunger enough courage to step forward to make a declaration that this is their desire and you will indeed take over and do the rest and we're grateful for that join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org